This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. We're going to be talking music, money and um, awards. And um, who better to do that with with the APRA AMCOS organisation? Um, joining me today, we've got uh, Dean Ormston, the Chief Executive of the um, of the group, and Millie Petrielli, who looks after uh, member relations and partnerships. Now, the reason we're talking now is because the 40th anniversary of the APRA Music Awards are happening in the first week of May. So um, I thought we might start off, and the, the awards are obviously linked very much to the organisation, and it celebrates the success of the um, of the songwriters. And um, so, Dean, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about APRA and COS, and is it, are there two separate organisations, or do you just shorten the name and most people refer it to as APRA? Yeah, thanks, James. It's not the easiest acronyms in the world. <laughs> um, and APRA, I'll start with APRA. APRA has been around since 1926. Uh, so we're a, a member-based uh, association um, that was set up in 26, um, which is when radio first started in Australia. So the reason that APRA came into being was to administer the royalties for the public performance of people's songs on radio. Uh, and obviously the business has evolved since then to cover the performance of music by whatever medium, whether that's a live band or in a nightclub or as part of a, a film in cinema and fitness centres, et cetera, and, of course, streamed on digital music services and uh, audio visual services like Netflix. Um, and we're, we're run by a board, so we have six uh, songwriter composer members and six publisher members on the APRA board and Jenny Morris, who hopefully many people will know, um, fantastic songwriter emanating out of New Zealand. Uh, she's our chair and we're very lucky to have Jenny as our chair. Um, and AMCOS is a, is a sister uh, collecting society that looks after what we call mechanical rights copyright, which is really when you make a copy of a song, um, that's called a mechanical right. So they, it has a separate board and they were two separate organisations, but um, the two are now operationally integrated. And so we are one group, if you like, being the APRA AMCOS group and, and Millie and I are, are both employed um, to, to look after the breadth of the, the membership um, that is APRA AMCOS. Okay, so it's the, it's the, the songwriter you look after their interest in the material. What about, does the performer come into it at all? Yeah, so no, APRA is all about the songwriter and the composer uh, and their related publishers and whatever relationship they might have there. But at the core of our business and the, really the core of the music industry is the songwriter. And so to become an APRA member, you just need to be a songwriter and your works need to be publicly performed somewhere so you know occasionally we get people ring us and say i've written 100 songs and they're all in a cupboard and we go that's great <laughs> when they get out of the cupboard and they're played somewhere give us a call um so yes we obviously a lot of songwriters are artists as well but not everybody and a lot of people would be surprised to hear uh about some of our, our more famous um members who are composers or write jingles but are not necessarily household names. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a really broad genre-agnostic genre uh, membership and we've got uh, just over 110,000 songwriter-composer uh, members across Australia and New Zealand. And, um, Millie, you might know this one too, but I guess most big artists, um, while performing other people's songs, they, they also do some form of their own writing, I guess. Would that be correct? 
I think in the last five to 10 years, artists are increasingly collaborating and writing their own music now. It has yeah. changed a lot over the last five to 10 years. And and a lot of music, and I think sort of hip-hop and sampling sort of um, gave you new uh, challenges, I guess, over the years. Sometimes there's a there's a long list of, of writers or collaborators on, on, on a single piece of music, isn't there? And a lot of rights that have to be cleared. But I think I think in the um, R&B hip-hop world now, there's been a big change to a lot of original, no-sampled Australian hip-hop and R&B, soul uh, and rap. And now there's grime and drill, a couple of other genres that are popping up. And it's very much a fully original Australian genre now and the the sampling of you know american artists has really diminished i think a lot yeah yeah now the awards i mentioned at their, their 40th anniversary so my my quick math means that was 82 was the first one is that is that it 1982 held at the hilton hotel um an event with no music and it lasted for 20 minutes <laughs> and, and 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 now in 2022 next week we will be celebrating at town hall in melbourne uh three hours of a night that's full of music it's actually an evening of music there's seven or eight performances on the night um the five songs of the year that are peer voted by the membership are performed by other artists their interpretation and translations of those songs are performed on the night, which we don't reveal before. We reveal on the night and the artist that's nominated is normally sitting in the room watching somebody else perform their song. It's a, it's a, it's a magic evening of music, to be honest. Um, does, do the awards predate the uh, ARIA Awards by just a couple of years? Would that be right? That fact, I do not know. I think we should just say yes, Millie. Personally, yes. we should just say yes. If we yeah. if we started in forty years ago and we've been around since nineteen twenty six, I think yeah, yes would yeah. be the answer. My, my my memory is that there was mid eighties the first Aria Awards, which was um, which was also held in the Sydney Hotel, I believe. Um, now you mentioned all the artists that perform. Do you have to pay your own members to perform at your at your own award show? Oh, you, I, I would hate to call it a payment. It's a per diem. It is nothing like a commercial fee, to be honest. We cover their costs and we look after them. But I think I think most of the our members who are performing don't really do this for the fee. I think it's sure. it's, it's 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 quite a you know it's big kudos to be asked to perform somebody else's song in front of them, um, and voted by the membership. Yeah. Something I think most people want to do. The the first awards, nineteen eighty two, and yes. they're people who were on our winners, performers, or celebrated at that event who are still very much a part of the entertainment industry. Well, I'm looking at this amazing list of facts here and Glenn Shorrock from the Little River Band hosted the first event and also yeah. took home five gold awards that night. Wow. And Glenn is, you know, he's still there and he's, and he's doing it. Um, we, 
if if I'm looking at this and and I was looking at the um, those members that have been awarded in the past, you know, and I hate using the word the oldest members, but Joy McKean, Bill Armstrong, Paul Kelly have all been celebrated for so many years across their genres and, you know, most of them are still working in the industry um, and still being acknowledged. Yeah. And I think, Millie, uh, I think uh, ACDC were oh. a, a nomination in 1982 and are a nomination this year, which is, uh, yeah, certainly going the whole distance. Um, and, you know, it's pretty amazing uh, for songwriters, people coming in and aspiring to be in this industry to to look at the fact that, you know, um, songs have a long life and and uh, reappear in different formats, whether that song ends up being used, synced into a film, used in a film or a screen production and suddenly can take a, a life off, a life over again. I know Love is in the Air was a work that repeatedly came up in our nominations year after year because it was being performed so often around the world as part of um, film, film tracks and things. So uh, it sort of shows that there's two lives to to what happens in music as you said earlier James there's the artist piece but perhaps when you're not an artist anymore your song goes on to have a life all of its own and it's it's part of the story we love telling especially to politicians around when you talk about music export for instance that um, you know when you craft a song here in Australia or you, you tell an Australian story that song will travel the world and it will generate royalties and those royalties will return as as export income into Australia. So we think there's huge potential in that space. And you can look at somebody like Sia, who was awarded our first ever Breakthrough breakthrough Songwriter of the Year in 2002. 20 years later, she is still being nominated, is winning awards everywhere. The last time Dean and I travelled to LA, we had nine billions awards. So nine songs had reached a billion streams to deliver to her office um, to acknowledge her success. And that's that's a 20-year career. And she's writing for other people and um, also for herself. So there, there's quite a few that have spanned a very long – I don't think there's a lot of one-hit wonders anymore, to be honest, in the industry. Sure. I mean, that throws up a, a few questions for me when you say that. I mean, that must be one of the biggest changes in your, in, in I guess, just the last, I don't know, when did they first start streaming um, music? I mean, it'd be, I don't know, within the last two decades, I guess, and that's mm. that's grown from nothing to be a, a significant part of a, um, of, a, of a songwriter's income. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... I think what's interesting now, James, is, uh, you know, it's, it's a difficult business for people to be in and make a dollar. Um, and I think people have become very astute about understanding the various revenue streams. So, you know, you might be a live artist performer and you will also rely on your royalties and uh, you might also get your music used in a film, as I said earlier. So there's a sync opportunity there. So people are always looking at what are all the all of the revenue streams I potentially have. And, you know, some of the best operators, um, you know, locally and globally are those who have understood that very well. And um, uh, and it's it's that collective 
remuneration that becomes important. And look, COVID has been a great example of um, having to navigate that context where live music performance was shut down globally. Nobody was touring, nobody was doing anything. Um, so people who had a strong presence in the digital space sort of were able to cope better through the COVID period than, than other people who um, might rely more on performing live. That um, it must be maybe, I don't know, rewarding or must be exciting for, for you and the organisation to see when you get people who are new to the industry and you see them, I guess, become professional, if you like. It goes from being something they do as well, maybe holding down another job or, or they just develop their craft and they, and they suddenly become, it becomes um it becomes a career for them and it pays their way and you see them develop as an artist and um, get rewarded financially. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, uh, Millie, I'm just looking at you thinking there's been a number of APRA awards where um, as part of the opportunity of getting a new artist to do a cover version of one of the songs nominated, we've been able to introduce uh, an artist at a very early stage of their career, and uh, you know, Millie, I'm thinking Rule, um, and there's Kimbra. a number, of, yeah, a, a number of artists there who've gone yeah. on to have great careers, and it's very rewarding. I mean, we, I, I would say unashamedly, we have the best job in the world, and it's a great yeah. honour, um, a great honour to to be here and um, doing everything we can do to support the careers of our members, and and a big part of that is the visibility piece. So, um, awards nights you know, that there is a strong marketing component to that, which is how do we help the visibility of Australian and, and when we're in New Zealand doing awards there, our New Zealand members as well. Uh, Millie mentioned a, a minute ago the Billions Awards, which was an, an award that Millie actually conceived uh, to, to globally recognise Australian and Kiwi artists who had written or co-written a song that achieved a billion streams. Uh, and so all of that stuff becomes part and parcel now of people's songwriting CVs. You know, when you're working in a global context, um, that visibility in those awards and accolades become very important. Millie, the, uh, the Billions Awards, um, have you, can you tell us anything about the biggest, the most streamed um, song pieces of music ever for Australian artists? What, what would be up there? If I'm looking at this and remembering the stats from the Billions Awards, I would say uh, Cheap Thrills, Sia, would be the one that has probably clicked over quite a few billions. Um, yeah. And there's a, there's, there's a few in that. And, and some not so known to us, Bassie, one of our um, dance writers based in LA, she's currently in uh, the Northern Territory, just clicked over to $3 billion on one of her collaborations with David Guetta. Um, so they're actually clicking over to the 2 3 $4 billion mark. I think Cheap Thrills takes it out for now. Yeah, yeah, okay. The, um, and, and talk to me a little bit too, I mean, the, um, to... to I guess you're out there representing the artists, you're fighting for them or you might call it negotiating on their behalf. I mean, you hear people say, oh, look, you don't get much money for streaming. Um, can you talk a bit about sort of negotiating things like that? And, and I guess in recent times there was, you know, one of the big cases I think was, was um, 
talking to the the radio sector and and making sure your artist's got a, a proper share of music that's being played on radio. Yeah, uh, it is negotiating, but it's it sometimes it sometimes it is fighting, James. So we don't back away from that word when we when we have to. Um, it is it is absolutely why we're here. I mean, the the point of an APRA is. It's very difficult. It's impossible to administer your own rights. I mean, as an individual songwriter or artist, to go and negotiate with a radio station or streaming service. That's what we're here to do. Um, and you know, we are all about achieving what what we would argue are world's best rates um, for the different services. I mean, obviously things vary from territory to territory, but streaming is a global a global presence and a, glo- a global medium. So it's important for our members here that we're getting the best rates. And, of course, the other thing that APRA does is whilst in Australia and New Zealand, our, our focus is the APRA membership of Australian and New Zealand songwriters. Because we have a reciprocal relationship with sister societies all around the world, in Australia we're licensing the world repertoire of music in copyright. So when we negotiate with um, whether it's commercial radio, commercial TV, streaming services, it's for the use of the world's repertoire in this territory. Uh, And, you know, we take that very seriously. Um, uh, And, you know, I I think it's fair to say there is a greater appreciation um, today of the value of music in different contexts. That doesn't stop people wanting to argue over the price of course. Um, but, you know, we're licensing small businesses, um, everything from a hairdresser that's using background music all the way through to streaming services. So the breadth of businesses that we are licensing um, and negotiating with is is vast. Um, there's about 140,000 licensees um, that we uh, work with and have licenses in place with here in Australia and New Zealand. With um, the other, the other uh, important element in our discussions with those big licensees like streaming services and, and commercial radio and TV is the presence of local content. And we have those discussions both um, in a government context around regulatory opportunities. So, of course, radio is subject to a, a code of practice um, and there are um, there are quota categories in the, in the radio and television context. So, we're uh, you know, we have great relationships with all those sectors, um, but, you know, we're there to do our best by our members. And uh, uh, so never a day goes by without a challenge in that space. Um, but um, front of mind for us all the time is we've got to get the best dollar we can for, for all of our members. Um, as I said, from streaming services all the way through to traditional broadcast and small business. Just two things to follow on from that. Do you, when you have an agreement, let's say whether it was radio or, or for, for streaming or something, does it have a time frame on it? And do you revise, do review it? Maybe I don't know, it's five years or 10 years at, at the end of that period. Yeah, definitely. And you're right. Typically, there are terms to agreements, especially with um, larger providers and services, um, so that it gives us the opportunity to go back and go, well, uh, the rise of um, the rise of streaming services, um, you know, well, what's what what we might be seeking today might be different from the day they started in this market, for instance. Um, so all of those factors are live and need to be considered when we go back to renegotiate those uh, licensing arrangements. Um, and again, that's look, you know, that, those players are big corporate operators as well. So um, everyone brings their best game to the negotiating table. Uh, 
I think I'm being as polite and diplomatic as I can be. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we can say, look, a part and parcel of what we need to do is have a good relationship with our licensees because the other thing we typically want out of licensees is data, uh, which help, helps with our distribution. So the more accurate, accurate the data we can get, the better our distributions. And, you know, the streaming services, the audio streaming services uh, have particularly been good in providing us with, with data. You know, we get every song that's streamed on an audio service in Australia, um, which, you know, when t- people talk about, I don't, don't earn a lot from streaming. I mean, that's true for many people. Um, but you're getting a payment for every time that song is performed. It's a different context to radio, which, of course, is only broadcasting a very small number of songs in any given day or week. But the royalty rate is considerably higher. But as everybody will know, you know getting onto radio is hard, you know, to to find a foothold on or, or a spot in a rotation on radio is difficult. So um, all of those elements are part and parcel of what we do, The putting the licences in place, making sure we've got the best data we can get in terms of uh, making accurate distributions. And, I mean, really we often talk about as a business we're at the nexus of music, uh, data and technology. Um, so, you know, we need really good tech in terms of being able to make all that matching happen and, and get royalty payments out to members. And, and just one more thing on this. the In terms of world rankings, I know, I know it obviously varies between genres of music, but, but can you overall say, okay, the Australian music market ranks as the, you know, number 10 or number 20 in terms of, of, of world sort of music revenues? Yeah, look, as a consumption market, um, Australia has long been in the top 10 music markets in the world. So for our size, we're an enormous consumer of music, um, which is a good thing. That's a really good thing. Um, What we're talking about a lot now is the opposite opportunity. What's our export potential? So in the same way that government talks about balance of trade, whether it's in mining or any other business, um, at the moment, Australia would be a net importer of music. So um, there's more international music content on the streaming services and on radio than local content. And, you know, that's, that's you know, it is what it is. But we say we should be setting our sights on being a net exporter of music where there's more Australian music going out the door than what's coming in. Um, and that might sound far-fetched until you look at the fact that there are three, there are only three net exporting music nations in the world. And it won't be any surprise to hear that it's the US and the UK, first and second. But in third place is Sweden, which people are often surprised to hear about. And of course, most people go, surely that's because of ABBA. And uh, that, that and didn't Max hurt. Martin. And, and Max Ma- Martin. That's right. ABBA didn't hurt. But it is actually the Max Martins, uh, you know, the songwriting studios behind the scenes that have written the hits for. Um, for the last 30 years for the world's great pop artists, whether it's Janet Jackson or Christine Aguilera or Britney Spears, or you name it, th- those big um, pop acts for many, many years, if you look behind the scenes, there's been a Swedish songwriter there. Sweden earns more uh, songwriting royalties, music songwriting royalties, than any other country in the world per head of population. So we talk in this context here to say to the government and we should all have our eyes set firmly high on the bar and the horizon of becoming a net exporter of music. So, look, it's a good thing we're a great consumer of music. So, you know, we are a a very strong music nation in that consumption sense and we're 
we're sort of pushing all of the levers we can for us to become a music powerhouse in terms of that export potential. Um, Millie, let's talk about the awards for a minute. The um, one of the ones that interests me most is the uh, the celebration for the most performed um, piece of work. Do we know ahead of what that already is, or is that something you reveal on the night? Are you talking about the most performed in each genre, or so the you, most performed Australian work overseas, or the most? So, how many do you break down? How many awards are there for most performed? So we break down into um, there's 12 awards on the night of which three are the board determined and the rest, that makes it nine, are most performed. So country, um, hip-hop, rap, R&B, soul, pop, pop's a Pop's a pretty new category for us. It's only been okay. for the last four years. Um, urban was broken down into two categories. We also have alternative. We have rock. Um, I think that's. Do you have an overall? So song of the year is the is voted, but it's not statistic. It's not based on statistics on those performed. Okay. Um, and there is the most performed Australian work. We do have that. And we do have the most performed Australian work overseas. Okay. And they're not genre o- Overseas specific. work in Australia, sorry. No, they're not. Okay. Do we know what they are now? Are you able to share that or that's something that's revealed on the night? It's revealed on the night. Okay. Ha- have there been years where there's been repeat winners? It looked like it's a song that just dominated for a few years? Yeah, I think our biggest repetition in that, it would be ACDC and SIA, the most performed Australian work. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so now can the public take part in this? Can they watch? No, we, 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 we... Broadcast on YouTube a few hours after a packaged okay. uh, event, um, which is edited down. So we don't have cameras in the room and we don't do a live broadcast. It is very much the music industry comes together on the night, enjoys the celebration and the music, and then we package it up and it's, it's available within a few hours on YouTube, on the APRA YouTube channel. I, I like it that you've kept this as an event for members, but you also share it with the public. So I remember one of the, the debates at the very first ARIA Awards, and I think it was, oh, was it, um, was a former chief of Warner here in Australia, Michael Turner, someone Turner? Anyway, no, no, this is, a, this is back at the oh, first awards. back in the beginning, yeah. Yeah, but there was a big debate about whether they should have cameras in the room uh, and whether it should be televised or they should keep it, you know, at something special for the members. You've, I think, successfully managed to do both. Would that be right? Well, I, th- I think there's a, there's a spot for ARIA because it is shared with the public and it is a television broadcast event and ours is – you know, specifically for the songwriters and our publisher members to, to, you know, come together and celebrate the year that's been and being able to package that up and share it later just allows us to keep that very intimate 
feeling for the the, the night. Um, and I think with the arias, it's actually a great thing that that's sharing it with the public. Do you know what I mean? And having a broadcast mm. event because the public needs to know what's going on in the Australian music scene. Sure. Now, excuse me if you mentioned this before, Dean, but you mentioned 140,000 people with licences. Millie, how many members do you have? Do you know? We have 111,000 writers and publisher members. Wow, that's astonishing. And, I mean, your title, Director, Member Relations and Partnerships, does that mean you're often uh, you oversee if someone's got a problem or that? you look after sort of what's what's concerning the members? There is a, a very big team of over 40 that are looking after all of our members' needs globally. And my role specifically, I have a global team, one that's based in London that looks after Europe and a couple in the, in the US. So we take care of our members who are, and especially in the last few months, seem to be going overseas, and that goes back to Dean's comments about export. We have a lot of Aussies going overseas and having a lot of success now and basing themselves overseas. Um, In the last three months, we've seen a mass exit go to London, to be honest. I'm not sure why it was London. I think it might be London (laughs) because it opened up and there were no rules about COVID. So, yes, there's a big team of us looking after all of our members' queries globally. Yeah. Okay, look, that, this has been fascinating getting a, a look at inside the awards and, and inside the organisation. I, I sort of might wrap this up and, and ask both of you what, I mean, once the awards once the awards are done and you've got a bit of clear air ahead of you, I guess, what are, we'll start with you maybe, Millie, what are the some of the challenges and some of the things you'll be sort of looking at on, on behalf of the members in the, in the next, I guess, just the next 12 months? Um. With us, it's, it's, it's creating the opportunities for collaborations and pathways for our members, really, um, and providing the resourcing and opportunities they need globally. And we get that information from them asking, you know, for what they need. So for us, it's creating those opportunities. Um, with a team here, we run a program called Song Hubs that allows our members to collaborate and work on writing camps. And now in the next few months, we can go back to having international writers collaborating with our members, which again goes back to the export, being able to export our music overseas because we are opening opportunities for our members to work with international writers as well. Okay. And and for you, Dean, I mean, you your um, financial year ends, not too distant future, I guess, June 30. I mean, is there a, a lot of... Um, a lot of sort of spreadsheet gazing and um, checking of facts and figures between um, your team between now and then? Uh, yeah, I think our CFO is completely on top <laughs> of his spreadsheet. And uh, But, no, you're right. We've um, last, last financial year, so 30 June 2021, we, we for the first time hit the half a billion dollar mark as a, as a group. So that's the APRA AMCOS revenue um, for that year. And we'll exceed that this year so we're looking at a it's been a very strong year um and part of that is um the success of australian songwriters and composers internationally so the number of times that their music is being broadcast or streamed 
globally, we're seeing uh, an improvement in that area. Um, so, yeah, certainly in the next few months, um, weeks really, our eyes are on our final result for the year. Um, I know you're in London, but for those of us here in Australia, we've got a federal election a few weeks down the track and we'll be looking forward to seeing who's in the government. And, and a lot of our work in that space is um, broader than what it used to be, broader than just talking about copyright with government, which can sound a little dry, um, but talking to the government about the opportunity of music and the fact that music cuts across a whole range of government portfolios. So whether it's education in schools, whether it's small business regionally, whether it's tourism, inbound tourism and music opportunities, or as we've been talking about a bit today, about export. Um, so we, we do a lot of work in that space in making sure that government sees the opportunity of music and they see it more than just being arts. You know, the art is the practitioner and the artist and the songwriter, but around that um, is the ecosystem, the business ecosystem that makes it all work and it's important that governments, both federal and state level, understand that. So we'll be um, getting to know whoever's got the keys to the house um, post the election. Um, and before I let you go, Dean, is there any top-line sort of financials you can share that you, you sort of remember off the, um, the top of your head? I mean, uh, your website, I think, says that you, I think over 85% of the revenue you raise is shared amongst the members. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So typically um, the way we report to our members um, there's the gross revenue result, which, as I said, for last year, 30 June was about 506 million. And we talk about our expense to revenue ratio, which is you know, the transparency of what does it cost us to get the money out the door. And uh, so typically we hover between 12 and 14% in terms of our operating costs. And of course, we try to keep it on the lower side. Last year we were sub 13%, and we're aiming for that again this year. Uh, and that's really important, you know, if we're, if our members are entrusting us with their rights to administer, we need to demonstrate that we can do that as efficiently as possible. So they're sort of the, the headline figures that um, our boards and our members would be interested in looking at. And if you take the gross revenue figure and you take the expense to revenue uh, figure away, you, you get left with what we call net distributable revenue, which is the actual money going out the door. And happily, year on year, we've seen a growth in that space. So even uh, with COVID um, impacting the business in the in the live space, so many of our members, I said earlier, who impacted in that space, we saw a, a big drop in our live music revenue, but digital has been strong. So when we look at the group result overall, the the result for the group is is up. Hey, all right, fantastic. Well, thanks for talking to us. Uh, Dean Ormston and Millie Petrielli from uh, APRA AMCOS. Have a great awards night and um, people can, I guess there'll be a link perhaps on your website or they could just Google um, APRA Music Awards on YouTube um, after the event and um, see what happens. Thanks very much, James. Thanks, James. Thank you.